You're listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I am Caitlin Knox and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Thank you for coming today. We're going to be focusing on data and the NHS being data driven. So really appreciate again your time. I know how busy you all are. What I'd love to do is head around the table and start with introductions. So um, Mark, you're at the top of my screen. I'll come to you first. You can just take it away. Thank you. Hi there. Yes, I'm Mark O'Connor. Um, my, my role at the moment, I'm intelligence partner working for the South and West and Central um, CSU function. Although, be honest with you, my experience has been 30 years NHS and um, Department of Health. So it's a whole host of different things that I've experienced in my my journey through through healthcare. Uh, so that's me. Yes, in a nutshell. Brilliant. Cheers, Mark. Yeah, I've known you for a while and you've got a few titles under your belt now, don't you? Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Fatty, over to you, please introduce yourself. Uh, thanks, Kathleen. Uh, I'm Dr. Fatih Saad. I'm the, currently the Systems Integration Manager at uh, Oxford Health and also Principal Data Scientist. Um, I have uh, more than 20 years experience within the healthcare in various um, challenges, mainly around data warehousing, business intelligence, but mainly my main uh, interest is in uh, clinical data science where we can do magic like forecasting prediction and then move from traditional kind of healthcare to smart healthcare where we can use the, the the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Cheers, thanks Fadi. And last but by no means least, Mickey, please. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so unlike um, unlike Mark and, and Fatty, I, I've only been in the kind of healthcare sector for about four years. I spent 30 years outside in the private sector uh, and I'm kind of bringing in that experience um, into the NHS. So I'm I'm currently working on on three projects, um, two within Dorset to do with um, image sharing um, in terms of radiology and pathology and cardiology and all that. And then in Surrey and Sussex, working on a, um, a big um, cancer remote monitoring system um, implementation um, across all of that region. So yeah, some, some interesting challenges and um, yeah, all all data driven. So yeah, you're a busy guy. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. I, some, sometimes, some days I don't know what I'm doing, but anyway, <laughs> end up winging it. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for that, Mickey. Right. Well, gentlemen, you've all sent me um, a question each. I'd love to get this conversation started. So I'll come back to you, Mark. If you could just please uh, read out the question that you brought to the group and then just share a bit of insight as to what you were thinking and then we'll we'll take it to the rest. All right. Yes, yeah, sure. So um, it's, it's one of those sort of questions which are both you can view it between strategic and operational. It depends what your take is. But essentially, it's how can data be best utilised to help track those large waiting lists and monitor patient flow through a hospital. And the reason why I've raised this particular question is obviously it's always a current question because from a data point of view is it's how can we best sort of articulate and visualise patient flow 
for a hospital, but also understand where there are demands and capacity issues and what the footprint and impact is on that in terms of data. Um, so the reason why it's quite pertinent at the moment, of course, is because, as we all know, I'm going to say the obvious straight up front here, you know, we're coming out of the COVID-19 um, pandemic. It hopefully goes to an endemic. And, and the fact is that hospitals are going through a, a trans transition between the surge demand dealing with COVID-19 back to restoration of their, their services. And as, as a sort of fallout of, of the COVID-19, we've seen a sort of displacement activity of, of patients now waiting considerably longer than they would because of the pandemic. And, you know, it's really hard, I imagine, being a clinician to think about how do I, you know, provide an effective service for patients really that have gone way beyond their kind of legitimate time um, to keep them clinically optimised for surgery. When obviously, if you go beyond that, that particular window of opportunity, unfortunately, many patients are going to deteriorate because of the length of the wait. And I know it must be really hard for clinicians to try and determine the most effective use of their resources with that as a backdrop in their heads about risk stratification and, and how to deal with it. Um, and then, of course, because of the nature of, of the impact of COVID, we've got all this displacement activity about sort of, you know, basically a lot of staff meeting that that demand so valiantly and so well and now themselves are in recovery you know because the nature of of the amount of pressures and anxieties that they've had to cope with and um, naturally there's going to be a lot of sickness unfortunately and staff sort of going through some remedial type care <laughs> to get over this sort of uh, the war-like, zone-like type of mentality they've had to suffer in, in terms of treating lots of patients in quick succession that are very serious coming in with COVID. Um, so the other pertinent part of this question is that um, many, as we speak now, a lot of the, the CCGs are going through a planning round with the providers on the elective recovery fund, which is right, we're right in the middle of doing this at the moment. So there'll no doubt be lots of commissioners thinking through the impact of the planning and whether or not it's possible to make it realistic in terms of the aspirations that are set by NHS England to reach those specific targets nationally and to turn it around on referral to treatment specifically. And some real challenges, mainly around operational elements. Um, but from an analytical point of view, is, is how do we kind of quantify that so it becomes realistic because the moment at the moment we do all do with with data reporting and, and performance reporting. But the nature of many of the performance reporting obviously is a bit of a of an abstract really because we all know we haven't hit targets. We all know everything is red rather than green and it, it becomes to many minds a bit of a bit of a superfluous challenge to look at a sea of red in terms of where to start. Um, so I just thought I'd raise the question just to get um, the other two here on the call their their view of it from a commercial sense and from a a way operation to think it through. I mean, I've got some ready answers in the back of my mind, but I really rather than to, to know what I think, it'd be great to hear what others other people's take on it really is on on this because it is a massive massive issue right across the sector at the moment. 
100%. And that's why we do these podcasts here, just to get a bit of a conversation going, you know. Um, yeah. So, brilliant. Mickey, I'll, I'll head over to you to get your thoughts on, on everything. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned risk stratification because that's exactly what we're looking at as part of the, the cancer um, remote monitoring system um, implementation that we're doing in Surrey and Sussex. Um, the whole point of, of that risk stratification is to um, free up time for the senior clinicians and consultants so, so that they only spend yeah. time with the critical patients. So I think in order to allow that, and, and you know, that's, that's within cancer, but the same mm. goes for everything. And, and really, in terms of your question, you know, we, we need to make sure that the people that really need to help are the ones that get to see the people that really can help them. And yeah. so it's all about, I, in my view, making sure we've got the most effective systems in place. So, so this remote monitoring system, for example, we're implementing, and, it, and it's an NHS England um, initiative, is, is to allow patients to become a lot more um, able to self-manage, and it, and it hands over a lot of the um, kind of um, test results and assessments and, and in terms of how patients get their test results into a digital framework. So you know they would literally be able to log onto a, onto a, um, onto their own patient portal and get their results in that way. But and, and then the clinical side of things, it's a lot more automated. Test results are fed through. There's alerts. There's a dashboard. You know the whole process is seamless and automated. And and in that respect, it it works. It's it's like sticking a whole can of oil into a system. Yeah. And, and it suddenly becomes a lot more efficient. And I think, you know, along along with things like community diagnostic centres, along with artificial intelligence, you know, artificial yeah. intelligence has been used certainly within Dorset in terms of appointment systems, you know, because it's any area that, that is literally crying out to be automated, where where certain things happen in a set, set order. And I think AI can definitely help that. Mm. Um, but yeah, those are those are some of my views on that. Cheers, Mickey. And over to you then, Fadi, what's, what's your thoughts? Uh, well, I 100% agree with Mark and Mickey. And, and uh, yes, uh, waiting list, that one of the very hot topics. And yes, it's getting worse and worse uh, after the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, to be honest, to be honest we're not in a great position in terms of mm -hmm. waiting lists. So, so definitely something has to happen because carry on like this, that, that is not going to help the, the, the healthcare providers or the clinician to cope with the, the, the increased demand on, on the healthcare. So, um, and, and if there is nothing has changed, that will reach, um, the NHS will reach the point to uh, reach a breaking point. So something has to happen. And I think the savior for this situation will be the utilization of the artificial intelligence and machine learning, because this is where you're going to direct your resources to the most vulnerable people, where you need to know where's your bottleneck within the services and then direct the resources to the bottleneck. Then that will take you out of that dilemma. But leaving everything as is now, that definitely is not going to help clinician 
providers and also not going to make the clinical setting uh, uh, an enjoyable environment to work for, uh, for other clinicians, to be honest, because pressure day, uh, uh, every day, every night. So 100% something has to happen to make that things much better than it is at the moment. Mm. Cheers. Yeah. And Mark, you were saying there that you might want to elaborate on a few more things you, you, you've prepared for today. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd want to so add in? Thoughts. I mean, um, it's really interesting. It's like I recently had a tenure at United Lincolnshire Hospitals, and obviously that was the issue, as is with many other hospitals, and I was ahead of performance there. And the, the nature of my role really was to be an advocate for a practitioner kind of model of, of thinking through and to kind of internalise how do we improve performance from an operational standpoint. So rather than keep looking at everything um, in terms of the, you know, the mandatory reporting requirements, which are still necessary, um, is how do we get a grip internally um, in terms of, of trying to get some traction through in dealing with waiting lists and, and movement through through the, you know, through the flow um, in terms of referral within hospitals. So we we came up with this concept to so say we it was actually kpmg that came to the table with it and i worked alongside kpmg and the executive team um to construct a, a, a sort of a range of different um, measures which the clinicians would advocate and say actually we'd like to measure this particular thing or that particular thing because we know these things are not working so for example there's a lot of issues around, uh, you know, a better way of, of having early clinical decisions to discharge a patient, or there may be things around patient quality that could be improved as part of CQC inspections that came up. And what was good about it was that they came up with some measures which there was a consensual agreement about, but then there was a proactive planning process each month in terms of that cycle of improvement. So it wasn't just a one-off exercise. It was going around in a rotation of other metrics to think about how do we prioritise, how do we continue the, the, the process of, of improvement. And what actually I've seen recently uh, for United Dignity is we've seen some very good CQC results coming out, which is amazing because you know, the, the hospital's really up against it with well, not just COVID, but on a number of other fronts about resource deployment, about, you know, having effective decision making on more to bold. And what we're beginning to see is all that hard work in utilising this thing called A3 thinking, which comes from a, a commercial setting and having specific measures and metrics which were practical so that the nurse on the ward could relate to the measure as well as the, the clinician, as well as the director, that that wall to board thing is a cliche term. But in here you could really see it in, in action and emotion. And that actually increased sort of a lot of patient satisfaction and a lot of patient flow. And um, so it's it's understanding where those bottlenecks are. I think Marty, you mentioned about bottlenecks mm. and understanding what is the cause and effect of a bottleneck. So to give you a quick, very simplistic analogy, you know, many people look at A&E and they see the number of patients hanging around A&E and they say, oh, A&E is a dreadful place for patients. You know, there's a massive issue about A&E performance. But actually, when you when you look at flow, the, the actual bottleneck is 
is a cause and effect. So the cause of the bottleneck actually isn't in A&E. It could be waiting on path lab results, phlebotomy results. It could be, you know, the turnaround of, of, of laboratories bringing back tests um, in, in a relative and effective manner which is causing because of because it's a long time to get those tests it's causing people to hang around longer so it's understanding where those dependencies are in the system and how do you improve prove them in terms of effectiveness and that is one element about improving flow isn't it and, and optimizing flow and optimizing patient care is getting what they often say is getting the, pair, the, the patient into the right place at the right time to be seen by the right clinician that's easier said than done when you've got, you know, a system that's swamped by different patient needs in quick succession. But if you can take a step back and measure a metric which you know you can relate to and go back to basics about patient care, like increased patient observations, you know, so we had one particular metric about quality and we we had an issue about falls, the number of falls which are happening across wards and how can we stop these falls from happening what what was the cause of these falls happening and we basically um, asked nurses to increase patient observations on a ward and we were we actually mapped out where the falls were, were happening most frequently in terms of ward level so we knew where the hot areas were and because that that happened suddenly we saw a massive result in terms of improved patient care and and throughput of patient care through flow because you know the, the the metric wasn't just about objective to decrease falls but the practical bit was to um increase patient observations and early detection and that that that's actually proved to be a remedial way of looking at mitigation and action so there are practical things to do and i, I agree the technology um, is essential in terms of improving reporting requirements, absolutely, because it is a hamstring in, in NHS terms and system terms, definitely. And we, we do need a lot of that, that kind of um, component technology that report, you know, gives us that ready understanding of what's going on on site in management of, of case mix. But I think also operationally, there are fundamental things that we can do. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the learning I took away from that experience. Cheers, Mark. Uh, Mickey, I'll come to you here and then after, if it's all right, we'll move on to the next question, OK? Yeah. Um, no, so all I have to say is, what do you think about self-referrals? And, you know, is that is that an area where you think we could improve the flow through? I know we, we've been looking at it as part of a PHR um, design and, you know, the more we can get citizens, patients involved in, in their own care, the better. And so, and self referrals might be a, a way we can do that, especially if it's a you know it's a, if it's a digital solution that links up food to the, the EHR in the hospital. It's it's certainly a way to go, but that's probably a whole that's a huge subject in itself. Yeah. Probably that would take up this whole discussion. So. <laughs> we'll have to park we'll have to park that one, and we'll, we yeah. can definitely do a little series on that. Sure. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. OK, well, listen, if it's, I'll, I'll move on to the next question, then I'll come to you. Fatty, if you could please um, read it out for us. Thank you. OK, thanks, uh, Catherine. Uh, my question is uh, how we can use the data in a best way that will improve clinical uh, clinician efficiency and clinical outcome. Yeah. 
NHS full of data. And, and, and all what we need to do is just to make sure that these data are available for uh, the use of uh, by clinicians when they needed it. And I'm super glad um, um, the uh, few years ago, well, not few years ago, like 2015, when NHS England introduced the idea of the shared care record, where many organizations, they share the data and make it available for clinicians for direct patient care. And I'm even more glad that the GDPR which regulating the use of the data relaxed for the direct patient care. So you don't need the patient contact, uh, consent in order to access the record from the GP or from the other hospital, because that directly will impact on, on, on the, uh, the improvement of the clinical outcome that as a result of this additional information become available to clinician. So, so uh, unfortunately, uh, nowadays, until now, there are so many hospitals that are where the clinician to get all the information they need to make the right decision, they need to access many systems with different username and password. So the data is there and it is important, but the challenge is how we can make that data reachable and available for, for the clinician at the right time. Cheers. All right, gentlemen, any any thoughts from either of you? Well, I'll just quickly say something. Um, so again, this is this relates to the image sharing um, stuff that we're looking at across Dorset, you know, that is, it's so critical that um, at a point where the clinician is trying to make a decision about a patient, they have every every image, every report, every everything that's, that exists about that patient in front of them at that point in time. And at the moment that isn't happening very well. You know, we in Dorset, we're using something called an image, image exchange portal. It's quite old. It's quite manual. It's not seamless. Um, it doesn't allow pre-triggering. So you, you will get situations where people will be trying to make decisions. And there have been there have been unfortunate instances where someone has made the wrong decision at the wrong time because they didn't have legacy information about, say, a tumour or something, which which would have helped them make a decision. Um, so I I think, yeah, it's it's super, super critical that we build dynamic data systems that give clinicians data when they need it. Things like MDTs. MDTs, you should, you know, everyone in that room should be able to see everything they need to know about that patient at that point. It's no good saying, well, we've, we've got stuff, but we can't get hold of it. So we're just going to have to make a, you know, those, these are life and death situations that they're dealing with. And if they don't have all that information there, so that's why image sharing, data sharing, is such a critical thing for the NHS and and more so cross-site reporting. So basically, so the person that wants to better write a report about someone doesn't have to be where the patient is. They can be in they can be on a beach in the Bahamas, you know. <laughs> um, really, but do you know what I mean? You know, they, they should be able to be anywhere because if you're having to physically locate everyone in the same place, then it becomes a lot more difficult and a lot. Uh, it just it just adds performance, you know, um, restrictions to it also. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Mark, what about yourself? Uh, yes, I mean, absolutely agree. Uh, I think there is an issue about um, how do we share information openly between nursing staff and clinicians in a way that 
that's basically immediate and accessible. Um, there are one or two systems I've come across actually. Um, I'm not going to. I'm not the advertiser for them, but I'll mention it <laughs> anyway, because um, one of them's called Chembox, and it's designed by a clinician. I think he's now based in Leeds, um, uh, in, and runs the hospital there in, in urgent and emergency care. And, and basically, it is a a site to site sharing um, mechanism, a software mechanism, which is open, which means that um, you can have this as a portable thing on your phone or your tablet to access particular um, scanned images or, or patient notes, obviously in a controlled and secured way. But also what's great about it is, is that as a system, if, if you say forward an email or forward a message to somebody on that system, it flags it red, amber, green with a time stamp on it so that within the team structure, you've got ready made structure where you're forwarding lots of dialogue um, and if it's not responded, you'll get a red flag and then that promotes somebody to respond and then that clears itself off. And there's lots of things around the nature of sharing that information readily. It's a brilliant system, actually. Um, and it, it's very clean in terms of how you can manage it. Um, but I absolutely agree. I think there is a big, big stumbling block, I think, in terms of sharing information um, across hospital sites. Um, there's still a lot of the old mechanical way of doing things, if you know what I mean, uh, unfortunately. I know that the EPR is, is supposed to have done away with, with those sort of silo type of information elements, but unfortunately that's not the case. Mm. And, and it, is a, it is a bane of a clinician's life, really, trying to reach out to a computer somewhere that only holds this information or only holds that portal to get access to, to patient care notes. Um, but I think, yeah, I think there's a real, a real patch there that, that technology can come in and provide a great enabler. Um, and, you know, it, it can be done. I've seen it um, in operation. It's very, very effective. And there are systems similar to what I just mentioned um, that operate in a very quick and easy way. So there's team to team correlation of notes and things like that. So absolutely, uh, Mickey, totally agree with you. I think there is a there is a a real reach to use technology much more. And I think the idea to have like app based stuff where you can go around on tablets and, and quickly view notes is, is an excellent one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's the way forward. Brilliant. Fadi, is there anything else you'd like to add on that before we move on to the final question today? No, they did a very good summary, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Cheers. All right. Well, Mickey, over to you. If you could just please read out your question and just share what you were thinking. Okay, so my question is all about um, good old data quality and um, the importance of implementing data quality um, across any NHS system. So I, I, I tend to feel that, um, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, guys, and I'm sure you, you probably will, but <laughs> data quality hasn't always been taken that seriously. It's something which a lot of, certainly in my experience, a lot of NHS systems don't necessarily put as 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 a as a number one priority at all in fact no priority so when i was i was working on a dorset care record which was the shared care record within dorset and a dorset care record um would be considered a slave database basically because essentially it would be it's being fed by all the different trusts within dorset all the healthcare establishments all the gp surgeries 
and all the data is basically flooding into this one central database, which is a which is a slave database. Um, but in doing that, you're essentially feeding it with humongous amounts of data, which could which could actually be which could actually be bad data. So in that respect, having a data quality management program is so critical. When I joined that project, there wasn't anything. There was no there was no data quality management whatsoever. So basically, um, bad data was getting in. You know, that zombies were being created, which which is a terrible thought. But people were basic pe people were basically um, um, people had passed away, but uh, because old records were coming in when they were still alive, they were suddenly being brought back to life. And and you know that is so awful. Adopt adopted children, you know things like that. Um, sensitive data was being passed through in, into this Dorset care record, which at the time we were only using um, was only being used by clinicians. But the, the whole point was then to expose it to the Dorset public. So by then, clinical risk had gone up another 10, 10 measures. So. Um, I suppose my my point is that I think data quality should always always be not number one on the list, but it's it's it has to be taken seriously. It's up there with all the clinical risk and information governance, um, and a data quality program should always be put in place, whatever you're doing. And I'm and I'm now finding that with the image sharing project I'm working on because data quality again. Is now really its ugly head, and we're now trying to work out how we're going to ensure that all image sharing abides by that and, and, and ensures that we we would never share incorrect data of a patient with a with another patient. So you know it's it's super, super important, and that's where indexing becomes important, and that's where golden record becomes important and there's a thing called IOCM, which is is basically how you ensure that any images that you you share, how that master slave relationship is then kept in 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 tow. So there's a lot of things to take into account, and um, I just I'd be I'm interested to hear what you guys think about you know data quality from your perspective. Amazing, got a few nods from the both of you, gentlemen. Uh, Mark, take it away. I think. Um, it's always been an issue data quality. I think you're very right in that um, it's one of those things where certain elements of data quality are so all encompassing that it switches people off from what they've got to do. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that it's a lazy way out, but I think it's just one of those things where you need lots of time and resource to manage the effectiveness of data and to improve quality. I go back to basics. I think the more that people use data and, and the more visibility of that information is made available, you generally find the byproduct is that data quality should generally improve because people recognize where there are anomalies in data and where there are gaps that need to be filled through the usability of it. And I think once you get that sort of visibility of information, um, you generally find as a byproduct of that, there is an instinct to improve the collectability and viability of the information. I think um, yeah. 
I think we're seeing that actually. We're beginning to see this because there's been lots of discussions around, um, as we all know, we're moving into the integrated care services and integrated care board provisions are being set up at the moment or, or being arranged uh, yeah. in waiting. And there's been lots of discussions about um, because of the nature of integration of services and, and integration of service design, there's been a lot around um, data share, but also um, data blending, um, meaning that you can kind of merge patient records from one particular service provider, say mental health, into perhaps an acute hospital and see if there's any like-for-like uh, -like comparability or, or usability between those two services and, and having a more holistic view, perhaps linking up those records with social care. Record linkage, though, is really fraught with lots of problems because you've got one, you've got to really understand the mix of data currencies um, that you're using because there are quite distinct data currencies within each particular service. And the other thing is obviously the nature of, of data quality itself. So um, if there are gaps in data, you're not going to get much out of it, even though you put a lot of resource in linking records together. Um, yeah. And the other big thing, which I think whilst people are talking about um, a kind of more holistic view of, of data and linking data and data sharing, um, is a view sometimes that people forget why is the data there? Why is it made? Why is it generated? And I think it's going back to the idea that the provision of data is there because there's a regulatory requirement for it to exist on behalf of healthcare, healthcare organisations. Um, so, for example, the provision of, of the secondary user service, the SUS data, the patient related data is there because there's a regulatory requirement for the provision of that information um, to be presented to ensure uh, you know, commissioning based uh, cost resource and efficiency of care is held accountable. Um, there are provisions in community services data, um, you know, which is a regulatory requirement. And so because the, the data was generated as part of a need for service provision and a very specific need in terms of legislation, when you start to mix data, it's very easy to forget that why that data was generated in the first place. Mm. Um, and, and you're kind of then morphing data to meet a new agenda, which it wasn't designed for. <laughs> so yeah. there are elements around that which bring about other issues with regards to data quality that, that people then suddenly realise um, come to the fore. So in this new world of integrated care, which has got to be really mindful about how we how we improve data quality, but also how we use the data um, yeah. in a way that doesn't lead to misinformation or misinterpretation. Yeah. Well said. Amazing. Well said indeed. Um, over to you then, Fanny, and then we'll come back to Mickey, sure. Thanks. Uh, I, uh, to be honest, I couldn't agree more in, in, in terms of how important the data quality is. And Mickey, you are quite right to be very concerned that now uh, uh, data quality issues now being shared widely from local use now to a regional level, which make it even worse when, when it comes to data quality. So and and, and it is it is very serious um, um, uh, topic. And I I agree with you. Um, the first thing should be applied to the data is the data quality, because 
anything will be fed from that, that from that repository that will will become um, a reliable or unreliable source. Uh, it depends on how good the quality behind that, that data repository is. And and the problem is some people, they think that data quality, this is a, a, the responsibility of the data warehouse uh, guys where, where data will be manipulated and, uh, and, and, and cleansed. But in fact, data quality is the responsibility of everyone in the healthcare. It's starting from the Absolutely. someone who the, in, yeah. in, uh, entering the information, who are handling the information and who's using the information. They are all they are all equally responsible for the quality of the data of the system they are using. So it shouldn't be the function or the responsibility of one service in a whole hospital. That's, that's very wrong uh, perception. That is a responsibility for everyone. And, and any NHS organization, they don't have the data quality framework in place to identify and, and, and resolve and engage or, or, or uh, alert the service user about this. They're gonna be definitely sooner or later they're gonna buy them that day. So, um, uh, Mark? Absolutely, and I think one of the things I've led data teams in the past, and I'm not saying this is everywhere, but sometimes you meet one or two individuals that get caught up about the process of data uh, and moving data around as part of a reporting requirement, for example. And um, when I've come in to, to manage those teams, I basically ask the question, why? So why why are you doing this? And they said, oh, I've just been told to do this. I said, well, you know, what's the reason? I've just been told to do it. And I said, well, do you realise the impact of what it is that you're doing? And they said, well, I'm just moving this data set into that that report, and then moving that report into this table, and I'm generating this this output. And I said, yes, but what I'm getting at is, what does the data represent in itself? And they said, well, data is data. So, well, no, it isn't. In our case, data is representative of patient. And this is this is the thing that I feel quite passionate about, really, about data quality as an element, because unlike any other sector, say the insurance sector or the banking sector, um, in terms of NHS and healthcare, data is actually representative directly with people, with patients going through the system. And it's about the nature of what's happened to them whilst they're going through the hospital journey. What are the interventions that have taken place, either medical or surgical? What is the outcome of that? And that represents you, me, your brother, your mother, your sister, your uncle. And it's very easy to, to think of data in an abstract sense. Um, and what I try and bring back to, to analysts and, and teams that I lead is the sense that 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 number one represents someone's life through a hospital care system mm -hmm. and never to forget that that unlike any other industry there is a direct correlation between the data we use and the individual that represents that and that's a very very powerful thing i think for people to to realize when we're talking about data quality yeah yeah it is it's really powerful go on ahead mickey Oh, well, I'll just, I'll just quickly finish up, but all I was going to say is that um, I totally agree. I think when we did this within the Dorset Care Record, what was really, really good was that all the feeding hospitals kind of had to clean up their act because, you know, it soon became obvious that they were feeding us bad data and, and they hadn't. So, you know, as you say, 
it's it's down to everyone. It's not just down to the the person who's running that system in particular. It's everyone who feeds into that. So as a result of what we did and as a result of the data quality measures we put in place, each of the hospitals, each of the feeding trusts suddenly became a lot more efficient. They were doing their own cleansing programs. They were doing, they improved their standard operating procedures. Um, and so it literally, it, it affected everyone within in that Dorset model and, and, and basically reduced the clinical risk as a result, which was, you know, at the end of the day, is what you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't say enough about it. I, I think the trouble is the NHS has, has created this whole batch of silos that have gone off and done their own thing, and now we're trying to bring them all together. And it, and it is proving difficult. It is because everyone's done their own thing. And how we how we get around that um, is going to be an interesting thing. Um, and, and there are solutions, but it's it's not going to be straightforward but i think data quality has to be such an important thing that we we um address going forward and it's got to be up there with information governance and mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I'm sad that that's pretty much all we have time for. I feel like we should do a volume two in a in a few months' time. Have you all back? <laughs> um, well, listen, thanks again for, for coming on. The trust that you are all a part of are so lucky to have such incredible minds like yourselves doing what you do in the project. It's just unbelievable. And yeah, just just really big thank you. I hope to have you all on again really, really soon as well. And um, sure, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. <laughs>